Hebrews chapter 4, this is what we're going to do. The next couple weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the presence of God and we're going to discover together how to experience the presence of God in day-to-day life. And it's a two-week series. Week one tonight, we're going to kind of provide a theological framework of how to even consider and to think about the presence of God. And week two, next week, we're going to get really, really practical on some practical tips on how to experience His presence in day-to-day life. Does that sound good? Okay, so tonight theological, next week very practical, but let's start with this theological framework. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, we're going to read, pray, and dive into it. Are you with me, church? Okay, three of you. Are the rest of you with me? Are you awake? All right. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word, and it says, Since then we have a great high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then wish, or let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and mercy in our time of need. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we open up your word tonight and we talk about your presence, we we simply want to recognize, Lord, that you're presently here among us right now. We want to recognize that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you're here among us, and we thank you for that promise that you have given us. Jesus, we want to thank you that you are our great high priest who has passed through the heavens We thank you that we can come boldly to a throne of grace. But God, we ask right now that you would give us understanding for these things. Lord, I pray that you would give us that boldness, that you say that we can come with boldness. Would you give us that boldness to draw near to you? God, I pray for those that are in need, that they would find your mercy and your grace in their time of need. And Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would just give us an awe. And just leave us in awe of who you are, of what you've done, and how we have access to you today. Holy Spirit, once again, we welcome you into this place, and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. It was the Chronicles of Narnia, and the Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe. There's a famous scene that goes like this. You've got little Lucy, and she's talking about Aslan to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Lucy says this, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their needs knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good and he's king, I'll tell you. Here we have C.S. Lewis brilliantly giving us this idea. Aslan is a metaphor for God. Lucy's just like me and you. She's going to go and be in the presence of Aslan. And and she's wondering, is he safe? And and they're saying, no, he's not safe. Anyone that's gone before him, they're going to be trembling in fear. He's Aslan. He's great. He's mighty. He's powerful, but he's good. And he's king. And as we consider the presence of God, I just want to ask that kind of rhetorical question is, when you consider his presence, what is your thought when you enter in? What do you expect? Because what we see throughout scripture is that God is both holy, 
He's perfect. He's a God of grace and love. He's a God who's mighty, mighty to save. He's going to crush the enemies under his feet, but he's a God of compassion and a God who is tender. So what is it like to be in the presence of God? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight in week one of the series. And what we're going to do, we're going to outline our, our talk tonight this way. We're going to see four scenes of God's presence and the priests. God's presence and the priest. Because a priest is really just someone who has qualifications, who has access into the presence of God, as we'll see throughout our study. We're going to look at these four scenes. Scene one, we're going to look at the garden. Scene two, the tabernacle or the temple. Scene three, we're going to consider Jesus. And scene four, the church. Okay? Are you guys with me? Okay, so as we look at these different scenes and we consider God's presence and the priests, I want us to just refer or understand that there are two different phrases that we see throughout the narrative of Scripture that are two different phrases concerning God's presence. The first is the presence of God. It's very clear, the presence of God. The second is the glory of God, but there is a distinction between them both. The presence of God, that word for presence, in Hebrew, the word is panim. Everyone say panim. And this is referring to a face. Panim literally means face. And it's referring to this metaphor of an intimate experience with God, where you're in the presence of God, you're in the face of God. It's an intimate experience face-to-face with the living God. And you're knowing God, you're, you know God tangibly and personally, but you're also being known by God. So it's knowing God and being known by God in an intimate way. This is the idea of the presence of God or the panim of God. But then you have this word for the glory of God. The glory of God we actually see after the fall. This is the more common word that's used. And the glory of God, that word glory in Hebrew is kabod, and it means weight. And the idea here of the glory of God is a metaphor for the holiness, the majesty, and the power, and the might of God, okay? And these are two uh, interesting and important phrases to consider and understand the differences as you're reading the narrative of Scripture. But number one, in scene one, we consider the garden. And in the garden, we see the presence of God. In fact, Adam and Eve are walking in and with the presence or the panim or the face of God. We see that God there at the beginning in the garden, he intended to be present with his people. Humanity, as we've looked at recently, was created to rule and reign with God. Let me remind you of what we looked at a few weeks ago, the creation mandate or Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, where he says that humanity was made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, in the likeness of God, they, he created them. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here, in this Genesis 1, 28 mandate, we see two important words, subdue and have dominion. But again, being made in the image of God, being made in the Imago Dei, we need to understand that important, important lesson of what that means is that we as humans, we were created to be God's representatives, to represent God's divine rule. Just as the image of a ruler is impressed upon a coin or a currency, wherever that coin or currency goes, it shows that that ruler is the one who has rulership over that area. 
In the same way, God's image has been impressed upon humanity that wherever we go as humans, we are a reflection of the ruler. And wherever we go, God is the one who has authority over this region. This is what it means to be made in the Imago Dei or certainly a big aspect of what it means to be made in God's image. It means that we are his representatives wherever we go. But also the idea is that we're his royal representatives, that we are in the image of God. We're at the pinnacle of his creation and that we are called then to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth. And these ideas of filling, of having subduing and having dominion is rulership language. We're extending God's rule over creation. We are extending it among the rest of creation. This is the idea that we see here in the garden or in Genesis. And this is important to understand because we're his representatives. But this continues in Genesis chapter 2. We haven't looked at this one before. Genesis 2.15 says this, The Lord God took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now notice this. The humanity or man, woman was, man wasn't, man was not created in the garden. Man was created outside the garden and he was drawn in into the garden to keep the garden, to work the garden, and to keep the garden. And this is an interesting little side note. What's really going on here? Well, humanity were called to be his royal representatives. But then we see this idea that God wants humanity to be be close to him. The garden is where God is setting up his rulership. It's where God's presence is. It's where the penim, where the face of God dwells. It's God's dwelling place is in the garden. And God wants us as humanity to be near to him. So he draws Adam in and in the garden he forms and he creates Eve. And he gives Adam... another little mandate or another commission or a task, a job description. And it is to work and to keep the garden. Now, the idea to work, we actually see this word in Hebrew used all throughout Scripture, and it really just means to serve. He's supposed to serve in the garden. He's supposed to serve where the presence of God is, and then he's supposed to keep the garden. Now, this idea of keeping the garden is super interesting because that word there can actually be transliterated into protect or guard the garden. In the other words, Adam, one of his jobs was to protect God's dwelling place, to protect God's throne room there in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that kind of cool? So some Bible scholars say that Adam's first failure wasn't actually not telling Eve about the whole tree situation. His first failure was allowing the serpent into the Garden of Eden. Because his job was to keep it, to guard it, and to protect it. Yet all of a sudden, when we get to Genesis 3, we find that this crafty, slippery serpent has made its way in. But this idea that we're looking at is super interesting because as we consider the presence of God and the priests... We see that this idea of what Adam is called to do, what humanity was intended to do to represent God and then to keep God's dwelling place, to serve God in his dwelling place, to protect it. This is priestly language. We see that Adam was supposed to and intended to be humanity were intended to be royal priests working and serving in the presence of 
God. Yet we know that Adam failed. Nonetheless, let me show you this thing. As we consider God's presence and the priest, let's put up that first, that first slide or visual. What we see is that God, ever since the beginning, he intended for humanity to be close to him. Where God is setting up his throne, where the presence of God is found, where the penim or the face of God is found, is in the garden. But we see that the garden was a location within Eden, and Eden is a location within creation. Remember, Adam was created outside of the garden, but what does God do? God draws him into the garden. What's the point we're trying to make? Humanity has always been designed to dwell in and with the presence of God. God's desire has always been to draw humanity near him. He desires to be with his people, his creation, his humanity, you and me. But we see in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam fails. You know the story in Genesis chapter 3. He lets the slippery serpent in. Sin enters into the per- picture. And then we read this in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. That they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now notice that. Sin had entered into the picture. Shame has entered into the picture. Rather than living in, dwelling with, being among the presence of God, they're now hiding from the presence or the panim of God. Now think about this. Any of you that have kids, when, you, when our kids do something, you know, my, my daughter does something and she, she did something outside yesterday and she was so embarrassed where she broke something and she was so embarrassed to tell daddy and she doesn't even want to look up into my face to see the, maybe the potential disappointment that I have in her. And that's the idea of shame. That's the idea that every single one of us carry. It's been said that guilt is feeling bad for what you've done. Shame is feeling bad for who you are. We see that because of sin, guilt and shame are in the garden now here with Adam and Eve. And their result of sin and guilt and shame is that they want to hide themselves from the presence of God. They're shamed at what they've done. And as we just set up this series on the presence of God, I just want us to ask that question real quick. Are we ashamed at times? Are we ashamed to enter into the presence of God because of something that we've done or because we don't feel like we're good enough? And if that's the case, that's the case every single person has felt on the face of this earth. It's what we see here in the garden. They're now hiding themselves from the presence of God. But get this. Even when humanity hides ourselves from the presence of God, we withdraw from God. God has always been in pursuit of humanity. And that brings us to scene two. In scene two, we come across the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, either one. We're really going to be talking about the tabernacle as we approach this. But what we see... Is that God has always been in pursuit of his people. Because of sin, God does have to send them out of the garden, out of where the presence of God dwells, away from the penim or the face of God, and he sends them out of the garden of Eden. 
But even although that he sent them out, he gave them this promise, right? He came, he gave them a, a promise of this seed that would crush the head of the serpent, right? He gave them this promise as he clothed them with, with clothes of skin. And he sent them out of the garden as a promise, as a picture that God was still going to make a way for humanity to be among his people. And we see this kind of hits a climactic point in the Old Testament when we consider the tabernacle. And we find after the nation of Israel has been, has been delivered out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, we see this new thing begins, this new thing considering the tabernacle and the temple. It happens as Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and when he goes up Mount Sinai, he has an experience with the glory of God. Let's read about that experience in Exodus 33. It'll be up on the screen. Moses says, speaking of God, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face or my panim. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory... Not the panim, not the presence of God, but the glory passes by. I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here we see this kind of new thing that happens. We get a new revelation through Moses as Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He has this encounter where he meets with God. He experiences the glory of God, but he asks to see God's face. And God says, you cannot see my panim. You cannot see my face. For if you do, you will not live. Now, many of us understand this idea. It's God. He's perfect. He's holy. Now, sin has entered into the picture. And, and that relationship between humanity and God has been severed. It's been broken. There's a chasm where now we cannot experience the fullness of God's presence. And so all that Moses is able to see is the glory of God, is the majesty of God, is the holiness of God. He's only able to get a glimpse of of it as the glory of God passes him by. But as he's up there, God then lays out this plan because God is always in pursuit of his people. Even though there's this problem where we cannot experience the fullness of God's presence, God is still in pursuit to be present with his people. And so he comes up with this plan that he gives to Moses. This plan where he's going to create a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. Where he's going to create this priesthood where there are these priests and there's this tent. And where he is going to dwell among the nation of Israel. Where this tent is going to be in the center of them all. And through certain priests and certain sacrificial system, the glory of God will dwell within what is known as the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle. So that the glory or the presence of God could still be among his people. And so we see in the story of the tabernacle and the temple that there's still this chasm, there's still this problem that's going on, but that God desires to be present with humanity nonetheless. God has not given up on being with his people. And so what he creates is he creates this tabernacle 
He has Moses create this temple, this tabernacle that would later turn into the temple. And he creates this priesthood. And this priesthood, in order for the priest to enter in and to experience the glory of God, there was a couple things that they had to do. In fact, here are a few requirements that will be on the screen of what the priest had to do in order to enter into God's presence. So the tabernacle was placed in the middle of the camp and there would be an outer sanctuary. There would be an outer wall where the priest would have to go in and he would be cleansed. It would be an actual cleansing where they would go from unclean to clean in a sense. There would be the ceremonial washing, the ceremonial cleansing, which the priest would be cleansed and he would be cleansed through water and then he would be clothed. He would be clothed with these linen garments and then these other garments, this breastplate that would all resemble the holiness. He'd be set apart in his clothing because God is holy and he, as a priest, is supposed to represent God to the people and the people to God. He is is, is clothed in this holy garments to show that he's set apart. So he's cleansed, he's clothed. And then we read all this in Leviticus 8. Then he's crowned. He literally gets a crown. He gets a turban that goes on his head. And this idea of the turban, once again, it's this idea to show the glory and the majesty of God, to set him apart from the rest of the people because God is holy, the priest is holy, and he's representing God to the rest of the people. So he was cleansed, he was clothed, he was crowned, but then he was also consecrated. And this is really interesting. In Leviticus 8, we read of this passage where, where there would have to be this sacrifice, and then the blood of that sacrifice would consecrate the priest. And that blood would be placed on three places. It would be placed, placed on the right earlobe, on the thumb of the right hand, and on the toe of the right foot, the big toe of the right foot. So he was cleansed by the blood from head, or he was consecrated by the blood of the bull, by the blood of the sacrifice, from head to foot. He was consecrated by the blood as the priest. And now that he's consecrated, he could go from that outer place into the Holy of Holies, and from the Holy of Holies, one day, or from the outer place to the holy place, or actually into the tent, and then into the Holy of Holies, one day of year on the Day of Atonement, where sacrifices had to be made. And if he failed to go through this process, then the glory, the kabod of God would kill him. Yet nonetheless, God was determined to be among his people. His presence comes into the tabernacle. He creates this priestly line to represent God to the people The priest is, and the priest is then to represent the people to God. The priest is a mediator, is a bridge between God and humanity. But this was not what God intended. God intended for his presence, for us as as his creation, as his people, to experience so much more than that. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, we see that the problem is still pretty severe. The Lord said to Moses, this is referring to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. He says, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside this veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. In other words, to enter into the kabod, to the glory of God, to be among the very presence of God is still incredibly, incredibly dangerous. 
you just might die. And so it leaves room for a better mediator, a better priest. It brings us to our third scene, Jesus. Jesus, who comes as the fullness of God. Jesus, who now the presence of God comes among the people. We read in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has now come. God has put on human skin. That we might now experience the presence of God. And I love this. Because Jesus shows us that now we we don't have to make our way into the presence of God. But that the story of the Bible is that the presence of God is coming down to us. It is grace. It's not this hopeless idea of we have to attain to perfection. And attain to all these sacrifices. And attain to this moralistic lifestyle in order to equate or relate with God. No. We never are going to make it. Even the high priest might just die there we saw in Leviticus. So we're in need of a better mediator. We're in need of a better priest. And his name is Jesus. And he comes down. He passes down from the heavens first to earth to dwell among us as Mary held that little baby as we're going to celebrate this Christmas season she's looking into the panim of God the image of the invisible God she's looking into the face of God where the glory of God is somehow miraculously within Jesus And as we look at Jesus, we see the glory, the fullness of who God is. So all throughout the Gospels, as we read of Jesus, Jesus, the presence of God, then going among the people, touching the people, calling the people, blessing the people, doing signs and miracles among the people, calling them to follow him. We don't have to go after the presence of God. The presence of God has now come down to us. Now, I do have another graph up there. Put up the temple one. The temple illustration is on there. Look at this. See, the scene in the Old Testament that we saw in the garden, it was the same with the tabernacle and the temple. The high priest had to go through the outer courtyard, through the holy place, and into the holy of holies to experience the glory or the kapod of God. But now what do we see? What do we see in the incarnation? That the holy of holies, that Jesus, that the presence of God is now coming down to us. Now, we considered that the priest, the priest had to be cleansed. The priest had to be clothed. The priest had to be crowned. And the priest had to be consecrated. Well, Jesus would go on and he would live the perfect life. There would be no cleansing that Jesus would need because he was perfect in all of his ways. Oh, he is perfect. He fulfills all the ceremonial, all the sacrificial requirements of the Old Testament. But there Jesus would spend his entire life in perfection and he would go to the cross. And at the cross, get this, the cross in a way would become a new temple. Where Jesus really as the living temple. There at the cross, the cross or Golgotha would be the temple. The cross would now become the altar. Jesus is now the sacrifice at his crucifixion. 
And there as Jesus is being crucified upon the cross, he was not cleansed ceremonially. No, he was washed with sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we would become the righteousness of God. There our great high priest was not clothed in royal garments on the cross. No, actually he was naked, bearing our sin and our shame. He was not crowned with the turban, but with the crown of thorns. And yes, he was consecrated by blood. There was blood on his earlobe from the crown of thorns where blood dripped from his forehead down. He was consecrated, yes, on the thumb of his right hand by the piercing that was through his wrist. There was blood all over him. Yes, he was consecrated on the big toe of his right foot because there was a spike between his feet in which blood dripped down. Here we see this image of the high priest. At the same time, he's the sacrifice. He's fulfilling everything that was required of us to experience the presence and the glory and the majesty of God. Here he is. He is making a way when there was no other way for us to be redeemed into the presence of God. And we read this as Jesus was being crucified, as blood was dripping from his forehead, from his hands and his feet. We read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. The temple that separated the holy place, or sorry, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom because the blood of Jesus, he has made, uh, he's given us access into the presence of God, but also that the presence of God would be given access to us. You see, the role of the priest was always to represent God to the people and the people to God. Well, Jesus as both God and man. As the image of the invisible God, he perfectly represents God to people. And he perfectly represents humanity because he came fully human to the Father. As he goes from the crucifixion and the resurrection and he's ascended, he passes through the heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He's representing us, humanity. As an advocate, interceding for us day and night. This is the role of our great high priest, Jesus. This is what he's doing right now in this moment. He's seated in heaven as our advocate, as our Savior, as our Lord. And through him, We are then given access into his presence, which brings us to the final scene, the church. You see, the church, unlike any other time in history, we have been given access to the presence of God that no Old Testament saint was given. It is through the blood of Jesus and the indwelling indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that Paul then says this about the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit 
dwells in you. Meditate upon that verse for a moment. Consider what humanity had to do, what the priests had to do to enter into the temple, to enter into the holy holies and the presence of God. All of that work Jesus accomplished. So now the presence of God can come and dwell within us. We are now the living temple. First Peter Chapter 2 8 not only says that we're the living temple where the presence of God dwells, but 1 Peter 2 8 says that you, that I, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are now the royal priests. The priests who get direct access into the presence of God because of Jesus. But also the priests who are to represent God to the rest of humanity. You see, through Jesus, he redeemed that original relationship in between man and God where we were supposed to dwell together. Jesus restored it. So now the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit lives within us. And notice this. There's requirements for the priesthood. Well, guess what? We're cleansed. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Every sin has been wiped away. Every failure, every mistake has been cleansed by Jesus. And just as Jesus was there with the disciples and and he says that he needs to cleanse them and he cleanses their feet each and every day as priests. As a royal priest, we have the opportunity for God to cleanse us. Yes, it's the blood of Jesus who wipes us as clean as snow, as white as snow. He removes all sin. It's a delete all. It's an empty trash of every sin that we've accumulated. But we still fail. We still mess up. And as priests, we don't have to clean ourselves. No, the living, the high priest, he will cleanse us daily. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is his ministry. We can come to him for continual cleansing. So we're cleansed as royal priests. We're also clothed as royal priests. Jesus hung there naked upon the cross so that he could clothe us in robes of righteousness. You see the trade-off there at the cross where we were once naked and ashamed in the garden, Jesus becomes naked and ashamed at the cross so that we could be clothed in His righteousness, in His holiness. We could be pure when the Father looks at us. He sees the Son. He sees Jesus justified, declared righteous, just as if I've never sinned. These are the robes of His righteousness that we wear. The problem, though, is even as Christians, we try to self-justify. We try to defend ourselves. That's my natural tendency when I fall into failure's defense. We try to defend ourselves. We try to justify our actions, but it's just like fig leaves in the garden. Covering up our sin and our shame. When we confess it and we bring it into the light, Jesus cleanses us, but then he robes us. He clothes us in his righteousness forgotten and forgiven. And we're also crowned as his royal priests. 
the crown for the, in Leviticus, for the, the, the priests of the line of Aaron, the crown was supposed to resemble the holiness and the goodness and the majesty of God. But guess what? We're crowned with the love of God. We're considered the dearly beloved of God. We're crowned with his love. This is why we can come boldly to a throne of grace. We're not crowned with judgment. We're not crowned with shame. We're crowned in his love because of what Jesus has poured out upon us. And man, as his royal priests, we are also consecrated. The consecration was done through anointing of oil and the consecration by the blood. As his royal priests, we have been consecrated by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus covers us and we've been consecrated. We've been anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as Spurgeon commentating on, on this kind of portion or this idea of being royal priests that said this, and I love it. Just like in Leviticus 8, where the, where the ear, where the hand and the toe had to be consecrated, so too for us as royal priests, there's moments where we need a fresh consecration of our ears, our hands, and our feet. We need to set apart, that's the idea of consecration, our ears, what we're listening to, so that we can listen to the Father, so that we can listen to his word. Our hands are to be set apart. Our actions, what we do, have to be set apart for his glory and his kingdom. And our feet, where we go, where we walk, need to be set apart for his glory and for his kingdom. And yes, Jesus has done this. He will anoint our minds by his spirit. He will anoint the work of his hands by his spirit. And by his spirit, he will lead us and guide us wherever we go. We're his royal priests. And so this is the idea that we see throughout the narrative of scripture. We see that we were always intended to be and to dwell among the presence of God. That sin entered into the picture and created this chasm. But Jesus fulfilled everything that was necessary for us to be restored in relationship with God and to experience his presence. In closing, I'm going to invite the band to come up. And we're just going to take some time to dwell in the presence of God. But I wanted to share this quote by A.W. Tozer. Tozer said this. He said, let us practice the fine art of making every work a priestly ministration. Let us believe that God is in all our simple deeds and learn to find him here. This is the idea of what it means to be royal priests. To realize that God is with us everywhere that we go because we are his living temple. We carry the presence of God with us. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that the presence of God dwells within you? That you have access to the presence and the power of God. Let's put up that last side, that last illustration. We saw in the Old Testament that they had to go into the presence of God. But now we see in the New Testament because of what Jesus has done. Get this. Remember the last slide that says the Holy of Holies? Well, the human heart has become the Holy of Holies. 
The very presence of God dwells within us as his believers. And when we gather together as the church, man, his presence is there in even more power. That is why we cannot forsake the gathering together of the saints. When we come together, we are the living temple. The idea there in Corinthians, when Paul is communicating about the living temple, it's a communal aspect. Yes, home alone, we can experience the presence of God. But together as the church, the presence of God is here in a unique way. The presence of God is here building a living temple as we gather together. And the idea then in the New Testament is that as we experience the presence of God in our hearts, as this presence of God is dwelling in us, and then we come to experience the empowerment of his presence with the church, we then are to go out into creation, to go out into the world, to be his hands and feet. That wherever we go, the presence of God is with us. Remember that was the promise of Jesus? He tells them to go out into all the world. Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so the idea now of the church is that we would learn, which what we're going to do next week, we're getting really practical of how to experience the presence of God in our hearts, privately and personally. But then as we experience the empowerment of God's presence as the church, then that is to equip us to take God's presence into the world. To bless the nations. And when we take God's presence into the rest of the world. It is God's presence that is the greatest apologetic and witness that others may believe in him. Yes, the gospel needs to be communicated. The message needs to be declared. Yet the power of the gospel is in the gospel message. But it is to be carried through those who are dwelt, have been changed and transformed by the presence of God working in and through them. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that we, you have restored relationship and access to you. Father, right now, I want to pray. For any person that is struggling with shame, guilt, that is hindering them from coming into your presence, Jesus, I pray that they would be cleansed, that they would confess to you that they would allow you to cleanse them from the inside out. I pray, Jesus, that they would just marvel and be in awe of your blood that wipes away every sin. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us a boldness to come into your throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need. And Jesus, I pray that you would teach us To not neglect your presence. To not neglect that personal, private time with you. Where we uncover the deepest corners of our heart and allow you to address us. God, we pray that our hearts would be an altar to you tonight. 
We pray, Jesus, that you would manifest your presence, that you make your presence tangible to us tonight through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.